Alright, take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1 as we begin a new series. should move my ribbon in my preaching Bible. Matthew chapter 1. In the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abuid, and Abuid, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Leud, Leud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we as, well, most of us at least as Americans are not skilled at reading genealogies. Nor is it our hobby for most of us. And so we ask that in our weakness, your spirit would be strong. For Christ's sake, amen. A number of years ago, I was an intern at a church, uh, working, actually interning at the church that Robert, our current intern, uh, grew up in. 
I was young, working for a youth pastor who was a very charismatic guy, lots of fun and interesting man. And uh, one day we're out running errands for the church, doing things, and he got a phone call from uh, one of the youth in the church and his family. They called. They said, well, we caught a snake. Uh, We can't tell if it's a a little garter snake or something or maybe even a copperhead. Would you mind coming and checking it out? And the youth pastor was uh, kind of amateur snake guy. Uh, Sure, we'll, we'll go check it out. Okay, great. We get to go see a little snake, find out what kind it is. And we get there, and they had caught it right next to the driveway. And they had one of the old igloo coolers, you know, one of the ones that's like this big from the top that you fold the handle down and then pull the lid off. And um, we assumed that they had said, nice little snake, maybe a garter snake, maybe a copperhead. We can't really tell. Most of us were assuming at this point that it's a snake, maybe the diameter of your pinky, maybe about that long and maybe a little bit brown. So we're all huddled right around, uh, right around the cooler, huddled right there. Kind of everybody's got their faces in, eager to see what kind of snake it is. When Matt pulled the lid off, I saw the largest, fattest, most obvious copperhead I have ever seen in my entire life. I'm not actually sure how he fit it in the cooler in the first place. It was probably that big around, which, I mean, Copperhead, I have literally never seen one that fat in my life since. And it was at least that big. It was the biggest Copperhead I've ever seen. And it was funny because we're all kind of faces all around the cooler, expecting this nice, friendly little snake. Open it up. It's like, whoa, everybody jumps back. One of kind of those great moments where even my subconscious, my body, my adrenaline, uh, my adrenal gland understood my expectations and my reality did not align. Right? What I had expected was this adorable little thing that the kids could then play with or something. And what we got instead was not that. Right? What we got instead was, and again, For kiddos, this is prior to Google, okay? So it would have been a lot easier now. But what we got was the textbook, Dangerous Southern Serpent. It was one of those kind of great moments, though, lessons in life of going, oh, yeah, they always tell you to kind of be careful what you assume. Be careful about how rigid your expectations are. It might not match reality. Well, really, I I think that's probably the heart of what Matthew is addressing in some fashion in his gospel. God in his infinite mercy has given us four records of the same story. Four authors have recorded the gospel of Jesus Christ and each with a slightly different personality and each with a slightly different purpose. Mark, you get the impression, impression was probably kind of maybe an impatient sort of gentleman. It's all action. It's just boom, 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 fast, and it goes. Luke, a bit more scholarly, is, is measured and precise as he includes little bits of details and kind of, again, odds and ends that you would maybe not have found anywhere else. John tells the story of his beloved Savior that he knew so intimately, involving things that no one else talks about. Matthew's interesting, though, because his purpose is fairly clear. He's writing specifically to the Jews. 
And what he's trying to address in some form or fashion is how their expectations had not measured up to reality. They were expecting one thing, and instead they got a cooler full of copperhead that wasn't entirely what they were planning on. In this genealogy, these first 17 verses actually frame out that kind of agenda from the very beginning. But again, most of us not being skilled genealogists, it might be a touch of a reach for us to understand. Well, first, we kind of see there's going to be a number of themes that we see is challenging them to think through ways that Jesus is different uh, even than what they've expected. He begins by framing it out in verse 1. Here's his kind of heading for this section. This is the book, this portion particularly of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of Abraham, he's using here words that we as kind of American Christians and those that have grown up in the New Testament take for granted that we don't think through all of the time. In fact, we use them so commonly, we we think Jesus' last name was Christ. It's not. Rather than a last name, it's his title. It would be the same thing as saying that Trump's first name is President. That's not right. That's a title. It's uh, something that he has taken on as part of his office. Here we have from the very beginning Matthew framing out that he is intending to tell us the story of this person. This person who's unique in, in all of creation. This person who's unique in all of human history. This Jesus who is the Christ. Now, for us, again, that idea of the Christ is a term that, again, we we use only in the context of talking about Jesus. But for a Jew, that would not have been the case. So much of their understanding of God's mercy, so much of their understanding of the religion of the Old Testament was built around God providing the Christ. Because they understood God's word. Well, they understood it well, but their expectations had maybe distorted parts of it. They had understood that from the very beginning, if you were to go back at the very beginning of how we have it, Genesis 1 here, God created the heavens and the earth and all things that are apart from himself. If it exists and it is not God, God created it out of nothing or those that would then secondary causes invent it and ruin it. His creation was good from the very beginning. There was no problem in it aside from the loneliness of man, and so he made woman, and everything was excellent there. At some point, kind of taken apart from our story, we don't know all the details to it, at some point, Satan, the evil one, fell from being an angel of the highest glory and fell into sin and evil. And for our purposes, he interjects himself into the human story in Genesis chapter 3. The time when he interacts with Eve, the first woman, the queen of creation. And again, those that have had those 
um, well-meaning people who have somehow framed out Eve as being this weakling. Man, that is terrible theology. (laughs) Eve is a creature of power and glory that we can really only imagine. She doesn't have sin. I mean, the, the, the best kind of analog when you think about Eve is to think about what we will become after we have died. She's marvelous, and inter, in this interchange with the devil, we begin to see his brilliance in evil and he, him tricking her in, in his conniving um, evil intentions and tricks her into sinning against the Lord. And in her sin, she then persuades her husband and the great conflict of creation enters in. From that moment, from from the moment that Adam ate of the fruit, not an apple, ate of the fruit, all of creation didn't work right. And that would have been enough. I mean, that alone would have been enough to make creation an incredibly complicated place. But it does not stop there. God then takes Adam and Eve and then curses them and curses creation because of them. So not only did we have the the actual consequences of the fall and death entering in, but then we have God cursing creation. Curses marriage and childbirth uh, uh, for Uh, Eve and then curses all of creation, work, and everything else for Adam. And it's in that moment that it explains so much of our normal day-to-day life. The frustrations of living in a fallen world, the frustrations of having to meet together for worship where you're wearing a mask and I'm not. Because it's through their sin that things like COVID enter into our existence. It's through that curse and through that sin that death enters in, that all that is unpleasant and all that is evil and all that is unkind enters into our experience and makes the realities of our world what they are. Sometimes I think we struggle to understand that point because our lives are so good. The Lord has blessed us so richly. We're the, we're the most richly blessed people in human history. I mean, if you listen to our complaints, you wouldn't believe that, but we are the most richly blessed people in human history. But it was important to understand that that's where evil comes from. And, and, and all of human history from Genesis chapter 3 is just building on how is God going to fix it? Will he? He doesn't have to. How is he going to fix the brokenness of the world? How is he going to fix our pain? How is he going to fix our sorrows? How is he going to fix death? And while our lives might have been easy enough for many of us that that would not be a reoccurring theme in our mind, for the Jews that was not the case. (laughs) While they have a season of of flourishing and doing very well, uh, much of their national history is filled with intense suffering. Enslaved in Egypt for four centuries... 
invaded in the northern kingdom, then invaded in the southern kingdom, enslaved to uh, Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, Even by the time that Matthew is written, they're functionally enslaved by the Romans. Invaded and living as somewhat free people, but having to pay taxes and such to the pagans. And all of their life would have been this building for how is God going to redeem us? And it had all been pointing to one thing. It would have been pointing to the Messiah. Translated here as the Christ. The one that God would provide who would unmake all things evil would undo all things sad, would restore creation to that it is good condition. But even uh, up front, this would have been kind of this mysterious thing for them because as a Jew, it would have been one of those things where you're longing for the Messiah to show up, but the second he shows up, man, he's going to upset the apple cart. And when he does, I hope he does it the way I want. And it would start out, if you continue reading the genealogy, thinking through it, that, man, this is exactly what we're hoping for. Jesus is the Messiah. Right on. We we know who the guy is. It's the guy uh, that we've been told is going to come. Okay, good. It's Jesus. We know who to look for. But then in verses 2 through 6, your average Jew would have been even more excited. Because when it goes to explain who this Jesus is and where he comes from, you would trace his genealogy back and see that he's a child of promise. He's the child of the Old Testament. We read already in Genesis in chapters 12 and then 15 and 17 and 19, uh, Abraham. He's the father of of the Jews. He's the father of God's people in this way. And guess what? This is who Jesus traces his lineage back to. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Hezron, Ram, and Menadad. His lineage is from the very beginning Jewish. That's why Matthew doesn't take the genealogy all the way back to Adam. It's not important to go back to Adam. Matthew's not trying to prove that Jesus was a man here. (laughs) He's trying to prove that Jesus was a Jew. So that when the Jews went to listen, they go, oh, he's one of us. He's our guy. He's the exact kind of guy we want. He's the child of promise. So that, as Paul explained there in Romans 4, that uh, Abram's faith when he was a hundred years old to have a child, God did. And this is the fruit of that child. So that all of the the promises, all of the uh, prophecies, all of the foreshadowing, all of the joy and delight, all of the hope has kind of hit this laser focus in Christ Jesus. Again, if you were a Jew and you're reading this for the first time, verses 1 through 6 would have given you virtually no heartburn. In fact, they would have been verses that you would have been most likely quite quite pleased with. 
The one that God is going to use to fix the world is our guy. He's a Jew just like me. Well, I'm not Jewish, but in the story. He's one of us. He's the one that's going to remake the world, and he's our kind of guy. And then in the next section, the second cycle here, verses 6 through 11, it would have then built, as it would have said, this Messiah who showed up is not only this child of promise, the, the one who is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, this child is a king. He's royalty. And it begins with the second great figure here, Abraham in the first cycle, now David in the second cycle. Highlighting this child again, the child of these promises. And if you were to go back, you would remember the promises in 2 Samuel 7, amongst other places, that, uh, that David would have a child on the throne forever. And so the Jews would have been getting excited. Here, we've got our guy. We know his name is Jesus. We know he's the one the entire Old Testament has been telling us about. And now we know, as the Old Testament said, he's a king. And if you were to look at these names, David, he's a king. Solomon, he's a king. Rehoboam, a king. And Abijah, most of the names in this section, well, it's the list of royalty reigning in Jerusalem. The thing that's so intriguing to me as I read it is being a New Testament Christian that's read this is, Yeah, these names are royal names. These are the kings of of Jerusalem, the kings of Judah. A lot of them aren't good guys. In fact, actually, a lot of them are absolutely evil men. But they were the ones who reigned. In fact, actually... We assume that this is actually highlighting that this, uh, this genealogy of Jesus Christ, this is actually the genealogy of Joseph, but it's tracking the, the royal line of the kings of Judah. Now, uh, there's a bit that's intriguing for this is when you get to about verse 12, Jeconiah, bad guy, not great. He's a mess. Shield tail, great guy. Zerubbabel amongst having the greatest name in Scripture, is also a great guy. Uh, when they come back into the land, uh, the genealogies get a bit hazy. It's reported in early church historians and Jewish historians that when Herod came to power in Jerusalem, and that one of the ways that he would try to keep them from having a king of the Jews was to burn all of their genealogies so that we don't actually know most of the names after Zerubbabel. They pretty much disappear kind of after that. And the latter names in here only mentioned in these genealogies, we have no idea who they are. But what it's building to, and what I would think you'd argue, is actually this is the list of who is supposed to be the king of Israel. The name that comes at the end of this list is the one who has the right to sit on the throne In Jerusalem, this is God's king. All right. 
Again, if you were a Jew, you'd be excited. We, we know the guy's name. His name is Jesus. We know that he's the child of promise. That's positive. We know that he's king of the Jews. That's even more positive. We can be excited. This is our guy. And yeah, okay, this third cycle, verses 12 through 16, we don't know a lot of those names. In fact, most of them are just kind of nobody's in history, so to speak, other than leading to this Jesus. But that's okay. He's our guy. He's our king. He's our Messiah. That will be it. But you would guess from my introduction, which was about misplaced expectations, uh, that they're about to get a little bit of a rude awakening. Because we find out through the rest of the New Testament that the Jews at this point were were really looking for a little bit of a thing we would call confirmation bias. (laughs) They were looking for a Messiah who would show up in their own image and enact justice and goodness and rightness the way that they thought that it existed. That's why you see the disciples are kind of always wondering, like, when are you going to kill all the Romans? Like, when are you, when are you going to dip, kind of remove all of these vermin that are bothering us? That's why at the triumphal entry, they, they crown him this king, and then they expect him to go in and to kill all the Romans. And when he goes to the temple and cleanses the temple, everybody's confused. What is he doing? They're expecting a Messiah made exactly in their own image, a, a Messiah who's got their own values, who has their own understandings, who has their own perspective. And that's not what they get. They get the one who's promised... They get the one who is king, but even in the genealogy here, there would be these hints already littered in to kind of challenge the Jewish reader to think something's coming that I'm not quite ready for. The first thing that we would have noticed that would have kind of caught our eyes and our ears if we were an ancient Jew reading this would have been the frequency of the women mentioned. Ladies, no uh, offense to you, in the time in which this was written, women were not included in genealogies. You didn't do that. That was not how the record was kept. It was kept as the sons of. Uh, who was the father? Who was the son? Who was the son of that son? And it traveled through the men. This genealogy, on the other hand, has a number of women mentioned, which would have already been a little bit odd to kind of catch our ears. Oh, this is, something's different about this guy. But then when you actually start to pay attention to which women are mentioned, they're all asterisks in the story. They're all women that you would have gone, wait, that's the one you're including? That's the one that you want to make sure all of posterity reads about forever. That's the one. Verse 3. Judah and Tamar. If you remember the story, that's his daughter-in-law. Her husband's not been faithful to her. She's not been redeemed the way that she would, and so she tricked her father-in-law into impregnating her to have Perez and Zerah. That's complicated and messy. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, the places where your family tree doesn't split are not normally the places you like to talk about. 
Verse 5. Rahab. Prostitute. Again, just going to go out on a limb. Probably not the family members that you like to talk about often. That if you're going to choose to include in a genealogy for special sake, that's not one. Ruth. Verse 5. Not a Jew. Remember, Ruth, she's a Gentile, a Moabitess who converts and, and becomes part of the line of Christ. But already in these three, you're seeing two are marked by rather unusual kind of sexual conduct. And one is not a Jew at all. Prepping the way for the most shocking woman of them all. In verse 16, Mary. Mary would have been the most surprising of them all because as we get to the story, the arrival of Jesus is going to be, uh, we would lovingly say, complicated. Here you have a a man and his bride-to-be, they're betrothed, they're um, by our standards married but not married. It's a little bit more rigid than engaged, a little bit more committed than that way, but there would have been no marital intimacy, and Mary finds herself pregnant. To think about, Jesus was raised his entire life with everybody in his town thinking he was illegitimate. To think that he was the product of premarital intimacy and the product of a sinful union. All the while, his mother saying, No, this is the Son of God. God made me pregnant. Tell me how that goes over. Can you imagine the first time she talked with her mom? Mom, you're not going to believe this. An angel told me I was going to get pregnant, and I am, and it's not Joseph's. Right. Sure, honey. Been around the block once or twice. I know how babies are made. Can't imagine how that conversation went. Can't imagine how many times she had to have it. You know at some point she had to have been the laughingstock of her community. You know, Jesus probably was as well. The thing that's so shocking is these women are included in the genealogy and all of these women are these unique marks of God's mercy. People that you traditionally would not include or or be proud of or, or would not delight in having them involved in your family history and yet they're marked here as in the line of Christ as part of those that the Lord has used to bring about his son and they're his portraits of his mercy. Every one of them. Tamar, faithfulness of a A God-fearing woman, even when the men in her life are not. Rahab, a moment of faithfulness, even in the midst of a a sinful past. Ruth, this tremendous transformation into this mighty woman of God. And Mary. Oh, sweet Mary. Now they all marked the Lord's tremendous mercy. 
This line is one that is not what you would expect. It it even already, just in the genealogy itself, is challenging you to think that this Messiah might not be the way I was expecting him to be. And lastly here, it would then kind of challenge us. And in verse 17, Matthew has been a bit literary. And so he highlights, so all the generations from Abram to David were 14, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, interestingly, he's left generations out in two of the three of those cycles. So he's intentionally kind of manufactured it the way he's recorded it here uh, to be 14, 14, 14. Now, that was, again, very Jewish. Uh, The word son of, the way that that was recorded in Jewish culture could mean like son or grandson or great-grandson son that, that was you know, completely honest and transparent by the standards of the day in which he was writing. But what he's then kind of compiled for us is this kind of symbolic arrangement of just this very neat and tidy 14, 14, 14. In essence, looking at you know, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, highlighting that this one that's coming, this Messiah, this Jesus, would usher in the seventh seven. And again, you remember in Jewish culture, seven was that number of completion. Is thinking of kind of even going back so far as maybe think of the year of Jubilee, that this one would be ushering in the era of God's kingdom. He might not be what you expect. But he is God's king. He might not be what you expect, but he is the child of promise. He might not be what you expect, but he is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. He might not be what you expect, but he himself would be God's mercy inside creation. Matthew's then going to take this genealogy and work its story out through the rest of the book, calling his reader to to reconsider who this Jesus is. Now, I recognize most of us in the room here today are probably not Jewish. Most of us in the room today would have most likely either grown up reading the New Testament or would have become Christians under the New Testament. And so we'd say, well, Michael, you just spent a whole lot of words talking about something that doesn't really apply to me. And I would say, well, I I would love to believe that the Jewish error of expecting the wrong Jesus, I would love to believe that was unique to them. I would love to believe that their mistake of having the wrong assumptions about Jesus, that it was just their mistake. And we could say, oh, those Jews, we love them, but they were wrong about that. I'm glad I'm never wrong about that. But true to form, pretty much any time you say, well, I'm glad they were that way and I'm not that way, almost always you're that way. In fact, actually, I I would suggest that one of the great struggles that the American church has, and certainly my concern in preaching through the gospel, is that we've already created a Jesus in our own image. A Jesus that looks like me, and sounds like me, and walks like me, and talks like me, so that when 
I pray as I did already that we be made into the image of Christ. We say, well, I'm already like that. Because Jesus is just like me. And in fact, I mean, I love the illustration of this one, but think about just the way that your kind of average American evangelical thinks about Jesus. Right, we have that in our minds. We have fixed that atrocious painting. It's absolutely wretched. That atrocious painting that was painted in what, 1956, I think it was? Where it's the like uber white, unbelievably beautiful man with the like thousand dollar conditioner and the perfectly trimmed beard. And it's just, it's beautiful. It's handsome. You're like, he was a homeless Jewish man. He spent three years without having a home, sleeping where he could find it. How many nights did he sleep out under the stars? Do you really think his hair looked like that? I hate that painting. I hate that painting. But more than that, I think probably American evangelicals have gone one step further in that we've said, we want a Jesus in our own image, one that makes me feel good. In fact, actually, one that makes me feel good about myself. One that, one that affirms me in the things that I do. One that affirms me in the ways that I feel. One that affirms me in my hopes and my goals and my dreams and my visions. One that tells me how to be the greatest me. And the unfortunate reality is, is if that's the Jesus that we have fixed in our mind, if we're actually genuinely going to wrestle with the text, boy, we're going to find out we're really wrong. Because the, the Jesus of the Gospels is the one who says, come and die with me. Come and, and lose it all with me so I can give you more. Come and suffer with me. It's going to be his first sermon. That's a, the, the, the climactic point of his first point of his sermon. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. How do I live in light of this? Well, the challenge we have as Christians, and I would suggest particularly American Christians, is to, to endeavor to have our minds radically reshaped by the Jesus of the Bible. And maybe not even the Jesus of my memory. It is amazing to me, again, how many Christians um, assume their knowledge of Christ from their Sunday school lessons that they have not reviewed or read in 50 years. It's like, look, I, I love, your memory may be way better than mine. In fact, many of you, I'm sure it is. You can't remember the Gospels that well. But you read them when you were seven, you know, seventh grade, and that's your knowledge to carry you all the way through for the rest of your life. I mean, can you imagine if you told your wife that? I mean, I know we had a conversation. It was 50 years ago, but I remember it really well. She's probably not going to be too happy with that. I would suggest for us as we embark through this study in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we need to kind of, in essence, be cultivating two things. These are the two goals that I would, I would have us um, cultivate. Is one is a deep, radical commitment to being obedient to believing this Jesus. 
the one this book tells me about. It's one of those kind of catchphrases. Well, the, the God I believe in, I don't care. I don't, I don't care about that. I want to know the God who told me who he is. Challenge number one is that we commit ourselves to believing in this Jesus and obeying this one, no matter what it costs us. No matter how much it hurts our feelings, no matter how much this challenges me to do things I don't like doing or to live in ways that don't necessarily affirm my fragile little ego. And then second is to marvel at the mercy of God. That's the part I I love, the the ladies involved in this genealogy just highlighting, screaming God's mercy that he showed kindness in the past and he shows kindness in the present. And that kindness is incarnate in the Lord Jesus, the fountain of his mercy. May it be that we have our expectations shaped correctly. So that when we meet Jesus, either in the life to come or if he returns, I'd hope this afternoon. That when we meet him, we're like, ah, that's exactly what I thought. Because we believe who he has told us he is. May it be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us understanding and belief. For Christ's sake, amen.